0: The nice thing about a Delaware statutory trust is these are going to be essentially pre-packaged for the investor. So the way that the mechanics of establishing a DST work are releasing anywhere from two to 20 DST offerings every year.
1: Welcome to Truly Passive Income. I'm Neil Henderson. And I'm Clint Harris. Well, our guest today is Trevor Floor. Welcome, Trevor. It's great to have you with us. How are you, sir?
0: Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Clint. Happy to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you.
1: So we were chatting offline before we got on. I want to make sure that I've got your background. I'll let you tell it, but I want to make sure I've got your background correct, is that you started off in real estate. You went into the Navy. You're a naval aviator for 10 years. You got out. You got your business degree from your GI Bill, went back into real estate, also started flying for the airlines, and now you also do real estate. Is that the basic gist? That's the basic gist. I'll add a little color to that. But yeah,
0: that's it. So I Please do. I started during my undergrad in Southern California. I started my career as a residential broker. When I graduated my undergrad, I actually started my own brokerage. I employed a couple sales agents to oversee their sales activity, but was shortly after recruited by a large medical office building acquisition firm. They were building a portfolio of these assets and I was recruited on their acquisitions team. So I started interacting with uh, brokers, commercial real estate brokers from all over the country to evaluate these medical office buildings and whether they fit the buy box of this company. And that's when I split and I went into the, into the Navy to pursue a career and serve the United States and the Navy. Transitioning out, like you said, I did actually two graduate degrees. Thanks to the GI Bill, I did a MBA at University of North Carolina and then separately a master's in real estate at Fordham University in New York City. And at that time, I started my current career, which began on the due diligence team of a securities broker dealer called DAI Securities, who I am still affiliated with. And on the due diligence team, I went to DST Properties, which we'll get a chance to talk more about. But as a due diligence officer, I was out looking at these properties, doing site visits, performing stress testing on the analysis that we received from the sponsor companies, tenant interviews in some cases, legal reviews. And I got very familiar with the DST structure and understood very clearly what the benefit to the investor was. And so I got licensed in 2019 securities licenses And began working with clients so for the last four years i've exclusively worked with clients to help them complete their 1031 exchanges using delaware statutory trusts as well as qualified opportunity zone vehicles and other real estate focused alternative investments so that's what i do today
1: gotcha and so dai is it a full service brokerage or does it primarily just focus on alternative assets
0: Yeah, so DAI Securities is an alternatives focused securities broker dealer. So this is kind of lays at the intersection of real estate investments and securities. So we have SEC oversight, but in many cases, we're also, we fall under FINRA. So we're licensed by FINRA in order to sell securitized real estate investments. So that's the focus at DAI. We do have some oil and gas programs. That's not my area of specialty, but it's primarily real estate with a little oil and gas mixed in.
1: It's such a foreign concept to the average investor when they think about a financial advisor or a financial services firm is almost always they're focused on equity stocks. And it's such a rare thing to come across an agency that's focused on alternative investments. It's almost always people having to just go out and look on them, you know, just network themselves and find those private placements and things like that. Is it something you were aware of before you got into it?
0: Yeah, actually I was an investor in private placements personally during my time in the Navy. I invested in several public non-traded REIT vehicles as well as syndications, single deal or single asset syndications. So I was certainly aware of it. I had in my network a lot of people around me that were also investing in that. But you're right, a lot of financial advisors treat real estate as kind of an afterthought. So primarily an advisor is going to focus on the 401k and the traditional securities advice. And maybe they'll help a client do a 1031 exchange once a year, but they really don't truly understand the real estate. And I think that to me, was a gap in the marketplace. In fact, a lot of my referrals come from these financial advisors that recognize they don't have the knowledge or the desire to learn the real estate side of their client's portfolio. And they'll send me that client so that we can talk to them about DSTs, QOZs, and other diversification vehicles just focused on real estate investment. So all of the vehicles that I present to clients are passive, So there's no operating or management requirement, whether it's a DST, a qualified opportunity zone, or a fund structure, but they can be very helpful to diversify the client's overall portfolio or present some very beneficial tax
2: benefits that we'll talk about specific to both the DST and the qualified opportunity zone. That's when you know you got a good financial planner. It's when they're willing to recognize their own limitations and refer outside of their expertise to find someone that really knows what they're talking about. That's when you know you got a good one. I agree. And speaking of those specialized strategies, we're kind of into the deep cuts now. These are veteran moves that we're talking about. Like 1031 exchange is fairly common. That's almost become a buzzword at this point in time. And, you know, within the syndication space, people look at doing 1031s traditionally through a tick or tenants in common structure. But now you're talking about Delaware Statutory trusts and all this completely separate from that qualified opportunity zone, which are something that have really come on strong the last couple of years. These are things that, frankly, people don't talk about very often. And it's something that we haven't talked about on this podcast yet, which is one of the reasons we're excited to have you on. Talk about a little bit in terms of the alternative investment space, originally use of 1031's exchange using the tenant in common and how that is transitioning the benefit that you see from the Delaware Statutory Trust office.
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start, Clint. So let's say in pre-2000, the marketplace was clearly representing a demand for a syndicated solution under Section 1031. As you mentioned in our conversation prior to recording, you had a recent guest that was on talking about the 1031 exchange. So I won't go into too many details there, but understand that there were a lot of clients that were familiar with the 1031 exchange at that point but wanted to move away from active management or wanted to participate in a deal that was of larger size than they could solely purchase. They may want to buy a $20 million asset, but they only have $500,000 in exchange proceeds. So to help solve that problem, some of the syndicators on the large national scale were able to get a revenue procedure called 2002 22 where the tenants-in-common was officially recognized. So this was in the year 2002, and the tick structure, tenants-in-common, became the first syndication that was allowed under Section 1031. It still exists today, of course, but it existed as kind of the popular and preferred syndication structure until the global financial crisis. And what we saw during the global financial crisis is a couple of very unique components of the tick structure. Because of the global financial crisis were kind of born out to be very negative. So the first of those is the debt on a tick property is typically going to be recourse. And that means that each individual investor is going to be underwritten by the bank. So during the global financial crisis, of course, banks were now being asked to underwrite potentially 30 borrowers on a single tick asset. And they didn't have the administrative ability to even do that. So lending became a problem on the tick structure. Additionally, we're limited on the tick structure to only 35 investors. So now, you know, if we want to take down a $50 million asset, all cash, we need 35 separate 1031 exchange investors who are each capable of bringing more than a million dollars to that deal in order to get our $50 million in equity. So we had limits there. We can also perform capital calls. So we saw a lot of problems where sponsors were going back to the investors or tick managers were going back to investors asking for more money as cash flow problems started to arise during the global financial crisis. And then the biggest one is that the tick structure designates a manager. So there is a tick manager, but they don't actually make the operating and the final decisions for the asset management of that asset. The actual investors do. So you have 35 unrelated tick investors that are voting, hey, should we sell this asset? Should we renew this lease? And ultimately, we saw we have a variety of of backgrounds, variety of opinions Amongst those 35 investors, we were seeing many examples where tick managers were screaming to the investors prior to global financial crisis, hey guys, the market's starting to take a turn, let's sell the asset. And members, the tick members were instead voting to hold. And as a result, the asset would go into a cash flow problem during the global financial crisis and many were ultimately foreclosed upon. So we saw at that point a pivot away from the tick as the preferred structure and towards the DST. And the DST or Delaware Statutory Trust... Actually, let me pause there. Do you have any follow-up questions on that before we get into the TIC?
1: Yeah. I want to just recount a story that I've got from a friend of mine whose family is a fairly successful small multifamily operator. There's probably anywhere from 500 units to 1,000 units. I mean, they're not a big operator. They operate 12-unit apartments all across Southern California into Minneapolis and things like that. And I remember when I was first getting into syndication and I approached them and said, hey, you guys should really consider diversifying a bit into another asset class through syndication. They're like, no. Like we've had such a nightmare with investing in a tick is the only – sort of group, quote unquote, hands-off investment they had done. And it was a really negative experience for them for exactly the reason that you're saying is that it was too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You just had it's like, tried to herd cats and things were going bad. And he had different people who were in different financial situations who were making decisions that were affecting people that negatively. So they were not fans of it. So I can understand. So I guess my question, let's transition into what does the Delaware Statutory Trust solve from the tick problem? Great. So each of those points, we
0: have basically a change in how the DST is designed. So the DST, just to define it, Delaware Statutory Trust, it sounds like a mouthful. All it is, it's a trust, which is an entity established for the benefit of others it's established under statutory trust law, which is in opposition to a common law trust. And it's done so in the state of Delaware. So that's where we get the name a Delaware Statutory Trust. It was actually referenced in our IRS revenue procedure called 2004-86. So this was in the year 2004. And the IRS, in essence, blessed the DST as an approved syndication structure under a Section 1031 exchange. The improvements or the differences, I won't call them necessarily improvements because there are definitely applications for both structures. But the reason this is more suitable for most investors performing exchanges today are number one, there is no limit on the number of investors, no practical limit. I think there is, in fact, like a 2000 investor limit, but in effect, no practical limit. Number two, all the reek or all the debt rather on the property has to be non recourse to the investor. So we get the benefits of the debt on the property. If it's positive leverage, we get to enhance our yields, but we don't have any personal liability. So the most the investor can lose is the initial equity investment they make. Additionally, the sponsor, and this can cut both ways, we do have investors that like control. They like the idea of voting, as we just talked about. But in my opinion, overall, that it is a positive improvement that the sponsor, who is the company that's typically has a strong performance record and track record of managing and performing both asset and property management responsibilities, they are going to be the ones that make the decisions. So the investor doesn't have any control. It's entirely passive. And they're going to do what they can, the sponsor company, to affect a strategy that they outline at the beginning of the offering. So if they say, we're going to try to own this property for five to seven years. We're going to try to grow rents using these three strategies. We sit back and we let them affect that strategy and hope they do that in accordance with the projections they make. And then at the time that the asset is disposed, the investors get their equity returned plus growth and they can perform another 1031 exchange or elect to pay the tax at that point. So, in a nutshell, those are the differences, and largely, those set of changes have made now the DST the more prominent syndication structure. For example, the DST equity it raised in 2022 was over nine billion dollars. So that started in 2002. That number with Tick equity that was raised in 2002, it was less than five hundred million. And now we've grown
2: to a large industry of over $9 billion in equity raised in DSTs. Wow. A lot to unpack there. So just to compare the two with a traditional 1031 utilizing a tick with an alternative investment strategy, a lot of times it's cost prohibitive in terms of getting the legal done. And there's a minimum of people won't do it unless the 1031 is a minimum of a million dollars or something like that. How does the cost compare from traditional the tick structure getting that set up in place and working with a professional to get a Delaware statutory trust in place. So
0: the nice thing about a Delaware statutory trust is these are going to be essentially pre-packaged for the investor. So the way that the mechanics of establishing a DST work are the sponsor company who's most of the sponsors that we work with are releasing anywhere from two to twenty DST offerings every year. So this is a routine part of their business model to deliver this vehicle to the investment community. So the way they'll set this up is they'll go and they'll establish the entity, the trust in Delaware. They'll go and identify an asset that they think fits investors' demands. They'll acquire the asset and they'll move it into the trust. While that's happening, they're creating all the offering and marketing material. They're making their forecasts. That information will come to my company. So now the asset is acquired. It's in the trust. We're reviewing it. So the sponsor did their due diligence on the asset. We do our due diligence on the asset and the offering. We also engage a third-party due diligence provider, which is a law firm when listed for this purpose to review legal entity structure, to look at all the risks that we're looking at as well, but they go at it with a little more manpower behind them. And then with all of that, our due diligence committee will review and approve the offerings we like. And only at that time will an advisor like me go to the client and say, here's an investment option for you. So everything is already bundled. We have all the material. We can look at third-party appraisals. We can look at soils engineering, property condition assessments, environmental reports. All of that is available to the investor the day we introduce it to them. And of course, the financial projections and kind of investment yield information that this sponsor is projecting. So that's a benefit here is that we get to look at that. So before we identify anything on the client's 1031 exchange,
2: we get to review that information. I'm so grateful that Neil talked me into doing a podcast because it allows us opportunity to have conversations like this. So thank you. I really appreciate your willingness really to share. In terms of the mechanics of the 1031, it's basically the same as it was before you still have. 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. And then the gain from that is exactly the same. So when you finish this 1031, essentially, you're looking for something eventually that you want to hold long-term or potentially pay yourself out by way of a refinance to try to eliminate as much of the tax burden as possible. But the actual 1031 vehicle is the same as it always has been. It's just utilized to get a little bit differently through the DST. Is that correct? So the 1031 exchange itself,
0: where under Section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, we're deferring the capital gain from our relinquished sale to our replacement property. That is unchanged. The only difference here is instead of selling, as an example, a single family residence that we have rented out to a long-term tenant. So we've sold this property that we have held for the purpose of investment we have this game that we don't want to pay a tax on. Many times that investor will think, well, I have to go and buy another direct title property. I can go buy another single family residence or a piece of land that we hold for the purpose of investment. In addition to those options that the client considers, we can incorporate the DST as a potential replacement property. We were able to look at a number of DSTs, and these we can get more into these details, but the property types on DSTs vary. So we see these are all institutional quality assets, meaning they're very large assets typically held by insurance companies, pension funds, large private equity groups. So we might look at a $100 million Class A 250-unit apartment building in Fort Myers, Florida, as an example. And we bring that to the client as a potential investment offering. If they like it, they can identify it, like you said, Clint, within that 45-day identification window, and then they have to close on it within 180 days. And just on that note, a very big benefit to the DST investor, these are essentially paperless closings. It's a very limited document that we'll send. It's a purchase and sale agreement and a subscription agreement. So we end up sending the client that. They e-sign it. That goes back to the sponsor and to the qualified intermediary. The funds get wired from the qualified intermediary and they're closed. We've seen this done in as little as two days.
1: I want to roll this back just a little bit and talk about this as it relates from the sponsor side. And you touched on it briefly, but I wonder if you could briefly talk about how a DST differs from just a normal syndication, getting that set up, the legal involved. Obviously, you said the people who normally do it are normally doing it exclusively, almost exclusively. They're doing it very often. And that's probably for a reason, correct? It
0: is. It's because it is a costly structure to establish. So the fundraising is typically done through... Financial advisors, so a combination of RIAs or broker dealers, like how I am affiliated with a broker dealer. We typically see a commission paid to those professionals, a commission to the securities broker dealer. Sometimes there's a fee harvest if it's invested in through an RIA, so they take a percentage a year. There's, of course, the legal costs. There's a lot of compliance associated with establishing the DST. And then we wouldn't consider approving a DST that didn't also have what's called a tax opinion, where in a tax attorney, and typically these are large you know, global tax firms like, say, Farth Shaw or DLA Piper that are authoring a tax opinion to go through the entire structure, asset, and strategy to ensure it complies with that revenue procedure, that 2004-86 revenue procedure. So to do all of those things, to pay the people raising the equity, to establish the structure itself, to get the tax opinion, those are all costs. And that's typically why we see these done only on pretty large properties. I mean, I've seen DSTs that have had more than $200 million in equity that they're raising because you have to absorb the costs of establishing the structure into the offering. And if you do that on a $200,000 property, The numbers just start not making sense. So what we typically see is the DSTs are usually done by players that at least have a dedicated vertical to establishing DSTs. And the ticks for the sponsors that want a little more lower cost structure with a little more nimble or kind of flexible structure, the tick is probably a little more accessible there and may in fact be appropriate because there are restrictions. And I'll I'll pause here. But at some point, I'd like to talk about some restrictions placed on the sponsor under the DST structure. And that can have an impact on the quality of the investment itself. But let me pause there and see if you guys have any follow-up on that.
1: So the average investor often thinks, they hear 1031 exchange and they go, oh, I'm going to sell this rental property and I'm going to roll it into another rental property. And then they think, oh, wait a second. Now I can just roll the funds into a syndication. And the reality is that's not true. It has to be a very specialized syndication is what you're saying. It has to be either a tick or a DST. And now you're getting into a whole nother level of cost and compliance is what you're saying. I want passive investors to understand that you can't just 1031 exchange your well, let's say $200,000 of sale from your rental property and just roll it into a syndication via 1031 exchange. It's a little more complicated than that. And you're probably going to have a hard time finding a sponsor who's going to be set up to take that amount of funds in a DST or a tick, correct?
0: That's the problem that I solve. So at any time I have, you know, 15 to 20 DST options that are approved and currently raising equity. But you're right. If you don't have a professional like me to help you source those DST options, it is difficult. You know, if you've done deals with syndicators and you want to do a 1031, you can't just go to that syndicator and say, hey, can you build me a structure as a destination for my 1031 exchange? It's more complicated than that. And it's certainly cost prohibitive for that sponsor to just establish, make a one-off structure for a single investor. So um, I would recommend to those clients doing an exchange that want a syndicated option to reach out to me or another advisor that may offer these investments and review these investments. Because not only do we get to review the property and the offering itself. But we also review the sponsor and we look at the track record and performance history of the sponsor. Some of them have been around syndicating property for 50 years, others are more new or recent to this space. They may only have a five or seven year track record, but we bear out that information for the client and make sure they're aware of the risks associated with both sponsor quality and asset and property level risks.
1: Is there a cost for the passive investor for engaging you and DIA? No,
0: not directly. D- D- DAI, yep. No cost in addition to the investment that the exchanger makes. So I'm paid in a similar manner to a real estate broker. So a commission is paid. So if they invest a certain amount of equity, I usually get a percentage anywhere from 3 to 6% of that equity that's invested will be paid as a commission to my firm. So that's how I'm paid. But at no time do I ever collect a fee or a commission directly from the investor.
2: Now you're talking about being so specialized that you basically become a matchmaker for people on the other side of this equation, right? You're dealing with the sponsors and helping vet them through the process and determine who's a good operator or one that's qualified for this kind of structure and who's not. And then you also, I'm assuming you have people coming to you with like, hey, Trevor, we're thinking about selling this portfolio in South Florida or Texas or whatever." we're going to be sitting on $50 million from proceeds. What have you got? You're in a position, I guess, basically to shop that across and just see these are the different options that are out there. These are the people that we vetted that we trust. Are you looking traditionally more from a sponsor's standpoint and then going out and helping them find the funds? Or do you have more of the time people come to you with, they've got a sale coming down the pipeline and they're looking for options? Which of those is the most often that comes across your desk?
0: The latter. It's my preference for it to be the latter. I work for the client. So I'm not held to what's called the fiduciary standard, which is typical in the financial advising world. We're kind of elevating our requirements that FINRA places on us to look a lot like that, but I'm held to what's called the suitability standard. So I need to make sure the investment recommendations I make are suitable for the client, but I definitely work for the client. My ideal client profile is someone who is approaching, has not yet started the sale process, but is approaching the sale of an investment property. And we get to incorporate the DST into their replacement property recommendations. So the couple of things I'd note here is number one, because this is considered a private placement by the SEC, we have to work with accredited investors only. So This may have been defined on an earlier podcast, but simply put, we need investors that have a million dollars of net worth, excluding their primary residence, or $200,000 of income for the past two years, $300,000 if you're married, filing jointly, and the expectation that income continues. So if you meet either the net worth or the income requirements, you're accredited, and then I can incorporate a DST into the recommendations I make to you in your 1031 exchange. And then one more point, Clint, real quick. On that note, when we have investors come to us early in the process, we see the DST utilized in one of three ways, typically. The first is as a primary strategy. So typically, the minimums on the DST investment is $100,000 in equity. So if someone sold a million-dollar property with no debt on it, we could potentially spread them across 10 different DST assets. Giving them a portfolio of diversified property, diversified by property type, some multifamily, some storage, some hospitality, some industrial, diversified by geography, you know, across several states, diversified, of course, by sponsor. So that's the ideal strategy if someone wants the primary and preferred replacement property to be uh, comprised of DST assets. But in an exchange, we can also use it as a backup strategy. So if someone is looking at purchasing another direct title asset and that's all they want, we can identify a DST as a backup to that primary strategy. And if they can't close on their primary direct title asset, remember after the identification window ends, we can only purchase what we've identified. So now we've given that client a backup option to identify. So if they can't close, they can invest in the DST. And then the third and final way that we utilize a DST is a complementary strategy. So if someone is selling a million-dollar property with no debt and they identify and find only one $800,000 property to replace it with, they still need an additional $200,000 of property to achieve a full tax deferral. So we can complement that $800,000 property with $200,000 worth of DST assets. So I just wanted to highlight that there are different applications here, but definitely want to engage with the client early to see which of those three avenues is beneficial to them. And then we'll start making recommendations on which DSTs to recommend.
2: So you answered my question before I could even ask you. That was the exact question was about being able to split it up, different asset and what the minimums were. I was trying to signal Neil, I wanted the next question. I couldn't slide anything by you. I should have expected that from a fighter pilot. So. That's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Question is, what about when someone, depending on where they are in their investing time cycle, if they're farther down the road, they've been doing this for quite a while. And let's say that they've done a series of these DST 1031s in a row. Obviously, there's a few situations where there's call it an off ramp for the 1031 or landing in something you want to hold long-term to try to get rid of a lot of the liability that you've been kicking down the road. Some people are throwing up around options with qualified opportunity zones, depending on what that looks like. But depending on, let's say somebody is later in their investing career, they've done a series of 1031s and they're kind of trying to wind things down. What's some of the advice that you're giving that person based upon where they are in that life cycle of trying to reduce their liability with an exit? Are they just trying to land in something that they can hold on to forever?
0: Yeah, that can be an interesting problem to solve because it will be different for each exchanger. What is kind of the baseline recommendation? I listened to a little bit of the 1031 episode that you guys put out. And remind me what the guest name was, David? Dave Foster. Dave Foster. And Dave said something that I'll repeat, the defer, 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 die strategy, right? And that's very much kind of a mantra in my world. So the swap till you drop or defer, defer, die strategy which is why pay the tax? We know that we get the step up in basis when our estate passes to our heirs and that it's going to eliminate all of that deferred capital gain. Now, we're still subject to the estate tax if we exceed the exemption number, but all that capital gain that we've been deferring is eliminated. So if someone... The ideal client profile to move to the DST is exactly who you're describing. It's someone usually who has grown a lot of their net worth through real estate ownership, perhaps multiple 1031 exchanges, or they just have owned one property for a long time. They've got probably no basis left. So by depreciating away their basis, they can no longer take any depreciation offset. So the income they're earning now has no tax efficiency. They no longer want to actively manage their assets. They want to retire. So the retirement strategy for that real estate investor is very well suited for a DST portfolio. So we do what we just talked about. We build a portfolio diversified across property type and geography. And we let them... And typically what we'll do is we'll invest that client into a property, a DST portfolio that has more debt than the relinquished property that they sold. And by doing that, by taking on new debt, they're actually buying more real estate than they're selling, which adds to their adjusted cost basis. So now we have returned some basis to that investor, which they can now depreciate away. So the income once they take on the new DST portfolio, will have some tax efficiency because they can actually accept the depreciation deduction that is available to them. So they've got now some tax efficiency to the income and they don't have to do anything. We just took one or two assets, spread it across 10, but we eliminated almost all management responsibility for the client and they sit back and they have a great income until the estate passes and eliminates that capital gain that was deferred. So that's kind of the ideal scenario. Now, there are situations where clients want access to more liquidity. In that case, the DST may not be suitable. Maybe we'll do a partial exchange where they sell an asset, extract some proceeds, and defer the rest of those proceeds through the exchange. That gives them the access to the liquidity. The other is there are some tick strategies and this kind of touches on one of the restrictions under a DST, we cannot refinance a DST property. So a tick property, as you may be thinking about, can refinance. So what we see in some tick strategies that are pretty appealing are the investor will invest all cash And then after some period of time of owning the tick asset, they'll do a cash out refi and return proceeds to the investor. So that can be another tool. And we don't have many of those structures on our platform to offer clients. But if that's what the client is saying, you know, as they describe their desires, if that feels like the right fit, then I would probably recommend they find a tick structure that had that kind of strategy in place. That was a long answer, Clint. Did I hint kind of the scenario you were
2: thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. That was great. Thank you.
1: So I assume once someone gets a portfolio at DAI and they're in a a group of DSTs, that occasionally there is an asset that's going to have a disposition, correct? That's right. And then are you able to guide that person into another take their gains and put it into another DST, I assume? Sorry, silly question.
0: Nope, that's a great question. And that's exactly how it works. So another restriction under the DST structure is the only way that you can handle proceeds as a sponsor when the asset is sold is that you have to return the proceeds back to the investor. So these are not unlimited life cycle structures where the sponsor can sell the asset and go reinvest it in another asset on your behalf, if that property gets sold, if and when that property is sold, the proceeds on a pro rata basis go back to the investor. At that time, they can perform another 1031 exchange into a new DST, into a direct title, single family residence rental, or a duplex, whatever they prefer, or they can exit the exchange chain and just pay the tax. So the advertised full life cycle of a DST offering is typically advertised to be seven to 10 years. So they're going to say, hey, you know, the sponsor is going to tee this up and say, hey, we're going to own this asset for seven to 10 years. What we've seen in the last three years is the average full cycle event. So the full cycle means that the property was acquired, held, and sold. So at the time the property is sold, the average holding period has been about five years. Now, the market's performed very well, obviously, in the recent years. So I expect moving forward, that probably is going to extend out closer to the 7 to 10 year timeframe because that it's going to take a little longer to achieve the returns that the sponsor is looking to achieve. But that decision ultimately is the sponsor's to make. But when it's made, this investor, of course, has all those options available to them, whether they want to perform another exchange or pay the tax.
2: So in a situation where you're basically at the whims of the market, so say, for instance, right now, you got somebody that bought a property a couple of years ago that might be 3.5% interest on a property. And a lot of people out there right now feel like they're stuck because the market's appreciated like crazy. They got a ton of equity in a property, but they don't want to sell it because then they got to go buy something else in the same environment. So you've got a lot of people sitting on the sidelines stuck with tremendous amount of equity but they feel like if they sell at the top of the market, they have to turn around and buy at the top of the market, and they're going to have a 7 to 8 8.5% interest rate depending on what the asset is. Essentially, this would be an option where those people could sell and liquidate, take advantage of the tremendous amount of equity they have in their property, and then come to you and be like, look, what kind of DST offering do you have? Maybe one that's on the shorter side, maybe one that's on the longer side, depending on what they're looking for. And Basically, get out of the marketplace and into a different kind of asset class that you guys offer and buy themselves some time, buy themselves three, five, seven years. And then when that goes full cycle, they can essentially 1031 back into the market, depending on where we are in the life cycle and get back into multifamily assets or a series of single family homes or whatever it may be. Is that right?
0: That's absolutely right. I want to be cautious about using language that would indicate this is a short-term option. So even though the average has been five years, I do not talk to investors as though this is a short-term investment. These are should be thought of as long-term investments. But what we see typically are the market cycles are 10, 12 years. So an investor who always, when we do a 1031 exchange, we're doing two transactions. We're selling an asset and we're buying an asset. You're never, almost never, I can't really picture a market in my lifetime where it's been a great market to buy into and a great market to sell into. Maybe on the upswing pre-global financial crisis, that was the case, but it rarely is a great market to both buy and sell into. So if you see, and we have opinions about this, but if the client has the attitude that, you know what, this, we're at a point in the cycle, it makes sense to sell this asset. The next cycle, I'm probably going to invest a little early, but you know what? My single family residence is at the end of the market cycle, but maybe hospitality is at the start of its cycle. There was a period of time in 2020 and 2021 where hospitality assets were trading very cheap because nobody was traveling and hotels were way down. So if you sold your single family residence at the end of 2020, you'd probably get a great price and pivot that into a hospitality asset at also a pretty good price. So we can pivot from property types that may be dislocated in where they're at in the cycle. And the DST gives you the opportunity to do that without having to perform due diligence on different markets, different property types. We kind of do all that work and pre-package it nicely for the client.
1: Well, Trevor, I want to start wrapping this up, but I have a couple more questions that I want to get answered before we wrap it up. Can you provide an example of a successful 1031 exchange into a DST that you've facilitated and highlight some of the tactical decisions that were made along the way?
0: Yeah. So an exchange I handled in 2022 comes to mind. We had a client who was had owned a commercial asset that she inherited almost 40 years ago. So she got the step up in basis over 40 years ago, but of course she had almost entirely gain in this asset, happened to be located in California. So that client would have been subject to both federal and state capital gain tax, enormous tax burden. But she was at a point in her life where she did not want to manage another commercial property. So she was looking for a way to be passive. We ended up taking that client through the exchange process. She wanted to have a direct title asset of a triple net nature. So that's another kind of not competitor, but another option for a client who may want to move more to a less active management. The triple net leases are typically long-term and the tenants are paying all the taxes, maintenance, and insurance costs. So she purchased as her core property about a $6 million industrial property with a long-term triple net lease. And with the remaining $5 million of that exchange, we were able to diversify her across about six different DST properties. And DSTs as a market are focused usually on multifamily and we build a lot of our DST portfolios that way, so you know it's multifamily asset is typically a little harder to manage. There's a lot more happening, so giving clients a passive way to diversify their portfolio into multifamily is particularly attractive. So that's what we did for that client, or a uh, industrial asset as their primary exchange property, and then with the remaining five million dollars, we spread that across multiple multifamily properties, one student housing asset. And then we put one hospitality property, actually a hotel in Texas, just outside of Austin and Southwest Austin in that portfolio. So three multifamily of student housing and a hotel property. She went through the process of securing debt on her industrial asset. And at the end of the process, she said, I frustrated with myself. I even went this route. Just getting the loan for that industrial asset was such a headache. I wish I did all of this in DSTs. And that was the lesson. These are a very simple process to underwrite for the investor, to close. And then now she's just sitting back collecting a monthly check from her five different DST investments. So great example of a success story. I work with clients all the time that have different situations, but they all kind of come down to that. I'm looking for additional diversification. I'm looking for less active management. And I'm looking for more options that I wouldn't otherwise have access to
2: if I were doing this on my own. I honestly think we might have to trouble you to come back for another episode because we haven't even gotten into the qualified opportunity zones, which I know you're a specialist on that as well. That's something I'm interested to dive into, but there's been so much gold in this one that frankly, I didn't want to leave the subject matter. So no, I have nothing else at this point in time, but uh, I've got a lot more that is going to have to wait for another day, I believe. Yeah.
1: So let's wrap this up by saying for someone who's looking to educate themselves further on DSTs and 1031 exchanges. Can you recommend any resources that offer uh, practical, in-depth knowledge?
0: Yeah, so their Google searches is going to give you a a variety of different answers on this. So I really recommend to kind of help the investor or the client parse through all the material that's out there. Come and talk to a professional, and I would love to be that professional. But I can be found if you don't mind me. Putting my contact info out. I can be found on LinkedIn, Trevor Floor, F L O R, or you can email me directly at Trevor F at DAI securities.com, at Delta Alpha India Securities.com. But I'm certainly happy to walk. My typical engagement with a first meeting is an hour of what we're doing right now. It's the client has all these questions, they've probably done some initial research and it just doesn't make sense. Nothing's kind of fitting in place and there're still these kind of missing pieces. So, we'll walk through the start to finish transaction with that client on the initial engagement, help them understand where the benefits are. Sometimes we have those conversations and the client realizes this isn't a fit, you know, I have investment objectives that DST can't achieve and I'm always going to remain as a resource for that client. So, Certainly feel free to reach out to me with those questions. The one thing I'll say is if you're performing or intending to perform a 1031 exchange, do not forget that you need a qualified intermediary. We need to engage that person typically five days before close. So I've had several calls from clients that say, Hey, I'm excited about a DST. I want to do this 1031 exchange. And I say, Great, when are you closing? And they said, Hey, we closed last week and my funds are sitting in my account. And I say, sorry, you're ineligible for an exchange at this point. So that's the biggest piece of information I can deliver to someone considering an exchange. Ensure you understand the qualified intermediary is required. And then give me a call and we'll talk through all the details from there.
1: Well, Trevor, this has been fantastic. Like I, I agree with Clint, we got to have you back on to talk QOZs at some point. But I'm glad we focused just on DSTs. As you said, please reach out to Trevor with the contact locations that he pointed out. Trevor, it's been great, man. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Clint. really appreciate what you guys are doing. A lot of education lacking out in the investor world. So I appreciate you guys trying to bring some of that to the investors that are listening and really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, Trevor. Really
1: appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode. Leave a comment down below or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with truly passive income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.